Good day and welcome to the Parental Rights Podcast. I'm Michael Ramey, Executive Director of ParentalRights.org and the Parental Rights Foundation. Joining me in just a few minutes will be Jennifer and Lou and Linda Pelletier, the older sister and parents, respectively, of former Massachusetts hostage Justina Pelletier. But first, just a word about what's coming up on the Parental Rights Podcast. Next week will be our monthly episode of The Corey and Shelby Show. Last month, they presented an insightful review of the 2006 Will Smith film, The Pursuit of Happiness, and its portrayal of the unique love of a parent even in very hard times. I don't know what they're cooking up for this month, but it is sure to be interesting. And the following week, Jim Mason and I will be back with Chicago-area family attorney Diane Redleaf, author of the 2019 book, They Took the Kids Last Night. We will talk with her about her book, her experiences as a family defense attorney, and recent efforts she is part of to pass reasonable independence parental rights bills. Tune in for those and all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or ParentalRightsFoundation.org, and you can also give to support our work through our website at ParentalRightsFoundation.org. Now here with us today are uh, three members of the Pelletier household, Justina's mother, Linda, father, Lou, and Justina's elder sister, Jennifer. Folks, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Uh, your family's nightmare is one we reference often as an organization, partially because so many people became aware of it when it was going on, uh, and partially because it was just so horrible. One set of doctors disagreed with your family's doctors, fully licensed, credentialed, respectable physicians, uh, about Justina's ailment. Next thing you know, the state has stepped in and taken custody, custody of your daughter, and you're out of the hospital. How does that even happen in America? Good question. <laughs> Awful. Go it, ahead. It just looks like um, when you're dealing with a powerful institution, they they have a lot of power. And it, it, as we saw in our own situation, it became the David against Goliath. Mm-hmm. They decided they went on one diagnosis, which was contrary to what the diagnosis was at her previous hospital, which she was actually still part of, which was Tufts in Boston, they decided when she came into the hospital in her weakened condition, that was the way she she was, which was just a temporary thing. And they decided to go based on that and make a diagnosis that most of this was all in her head. And the diagnosis they were trying to do takes six months to diagnose. You just can't be sick when you're being diagnosed with that diagnosis, which is called somatoform. Oh, there's another one called conversion. You can't just say in the emergency room, this child has this or that, because it's not the right way to treat people when you're sick. Wow. Now, so I sum that up uh, fairly accurately, though. I mean, you had doctors, fully licensed, fully accredited, um, who said she's got what mitochondrial disease? Yep. And an underlying stomach GI issue called neuropathy of the colon. So those were real, those were diagnosed, those weren't in her head or made up. And a prior stroke and also heart. Uh, tachycardia, the rapid heart rate. Dysautonomia, it's called. Wow. And they took her off those meds, so she was having very high heart rates in the hospital, which was very dangerous to a child who's already had a stroke. Wow. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's very we, um, I saw some of the photos that you guys shared back when that happened, how she was fairly healthy before she went in. And then by the time you got her back from Massachusetts, she, I mean, her physical health had really gone down. Yes, it did. Well, they were saying she was doing better away from us and she was doing cookies in the psych unit. She was doing really well there, which is such a lie. And Justina was quite upset. Mm. They said that because she goes, mom, 
I was never happy there. I told them every day I want to go home. Why are you keeping me here? I don't want to be here. Well, bottom line, she went in skating, walking, moving on her own, came out, not even being able to sit up in a wheelchair. So I think that's wow. pretty obvious right there, just seeing alone what <clears> else <throat> from medically neglecting her and what else, the damages. Like, I, I believe we found out that she didn't go to the bathroom for over a month. And Justina has a port that she went into with to the hospital with because she has the motility problem. So that was to help her go to the bathroom. They stopped maintaining that. And that which was very tough. Yeah, which, which that's, so the, re, the doctor that prescribed that is the doctor she went into Boston Children's for. But so she, they screwed that up. She ended up having her colon completely shut down. She had a bag put in and then ended up having to have her colon taken out after the ordeal. So no, they did not make her better they on the contrary made her worse and when she testified on a stand she was on the stand for about two hours she did such a good job I cried I was so thrilled the way she was able to talk because I really didn't want her to talk and all she kept saying was I wanted to go home you didn't believe me I don't want to be here I want to be in my home environment and she said at the very end of that two hour situation in the courtroom she goes you know what i have no pain anymore for two years i've not been in a hospital anymore because my pain is gone but the problem is she's still not walking hmm. and we're trying so hard to get her to walk again it's been awful because she was running doing gymnastics skating doing jumps on the ice now that has not come back so uh, we don't know what they what else they did to her while she was there are you aware of the Clinton, what he did? President Clinton? Jennifer, no. He signed off on something that was added into Health and Human Services. If a child, the minimum language is if a child is awarded the state, they could be used for medical research. To put it in plain English, if they're under the Department of Children and Families, under foster care, adopted, and they go into a pediatric hospital, and most have it in their bylaws, that hospital can do any medical or psychological research with pretty much no consequences. Wow. So it's a big, big business that's wow. going on. And it's, and of course, in Boston, Boston across the country, because we, unfortunately, when, when this happened to Justina, and then when we were able to get her back, we, we became a lightning rod. People from across the country have reached out to us to try to help them with okay. their own family's parental rights being taken away. And it didn't go away once we got Justina back. It's continued. It's continuing across the country. And unfortunately, unless it happens to you or somebody you know, you know, it's nobody cares. And that's why hopefully we can bring this to light that it is it is going on. It's going on across the country. Right. And that's and that's a large part of what our organization is about, is opening people's eyes and letting them know this kind of thing is happening and that we need to do something about it. Absolutely. Um, and that's what yeah, I'm yeah, trying so, to do, too. And I hope we can work together. Yes. And I'm looking forward to that. Um, in fact, we are um, as of the day we're recording this, not not the day it airs, but the day we're recording this. Um, we're, we have a meeting tomorrow with a, uh, a representative from the U.S. Congress to talk about uh, Justina's law that would reverse 
that would reverse that uh, that Clinton law regarding uh, regarding allowing research hospitals to do that kind of thing with with wards of the state. Is that right? Um, do I have that bill? That's correct. Understood. Right. We removed the language from. You it. do know she spoke in front of Congress and she had a standing ovation. Wow. No, I mean, I, I'd heard that she's, I, I was aware when you guys came down and she spoke in front of Congress. Um, and that standing ovation. For Justina to heal, this is what she wants to do. She wants to speak out and help other children. And she's been hooked up with a couple of people because she said, why did I lose? They not believe me. I said, people believe you. It's Boston that didn't believe you. And she says, Mom, I want to walk. And all day yesterday, she cried. And she said, Mom, I want to walk. I'm not making this up. So that's a good healing tool for her if you can get her involved somehow too mm -hmm. and get this moving. That would make her so happy. Yeah, that would that would be great. We'd love to see that happen. And our whole family um, too. Well, well, yes, of course. I mean, you guys have, have become really spokespeople for this. Uh, and, and that must have taken a lot of guts to go public with this back when you did. Um, of course, now, I mean, you've been public with it for years. Uh, you've been dealing with it. You just had um, a lawsuit uh, against against. Was the lawsuit against uh, Boston Children's or against Massachusetts? It was only against the hospital and four okay. of the doctors, three doctors and a psychologist. Okay, and then uh, this blows my mind, but that actually did not go your way. Right. Well, number one, you just mentioned we didn't go after the state of Massachusetts. They have very very limited liability. So to, to go after them is almost just a waste of time. They're, they're shielded, which a lot of people aren't aware of. That's why they can almost get away with what they want. That's a separate law that needs to be addressed that the immunity, the immunity, the immunity that um, DCF has. And secondly, part of this whole issue, which is gets really to the core of parental rights. One of the things we learned in the court system, which we had heard before, just at Boston Children's alone, they investigate five cases a day of potential medical child abuse or something involving where they might have to bring in DCF. Five cases a day, and two of the five, they actually do report to DCF. So that was said in front of the court. Because wasn't Alice Newton's like number 1.2 kids a day she takes away or something? No, she said two now. Oh, she her quota went up since Justine was there. So the point is, it's it's big business because if you're a ward of the state, and they're doing the research, who's paying for it? Is the state that houses you? So in Massachusetts, it's state of Massachusetts Medicaid that's paying for Boston Children's to do that research or whatever it might be. And you, as a family, do not know they're doing that research. So we suspect that they have done research on Justina because I don't know why she can't walk. And it's not somatoform. It's been 16 months plus that she's been home. And it's actually awful to try to get a child to be able to get her muscles back is like an endless circle. Right. <clears throat> right. And, and a little detail, I think I've got this straight that a lot of folks uh, across the country may not, may not be aware. Boston Children's Hospital, that is, a, that is sort of a teaching hospital of Harvard. Is that correct? That's correct. Owned by Harvard. Okay. Say that that's, that's the bylaws are right there when you walk in the hospital. Yeah, the patient guidelines, of, guidelines care. of care are right there and it's right in their bylaws. In fine print. In fine print that if you're a ward of the state, 
they can do any medical or psychological research. They say to a certain limit, but basically it's no holes barred. They can pretty much do what they want. Wow. And that's definitely so, going on across the country. Because if you look at the head of psychiatry of Boston Children's, wrote the medical textbook. Co-authored. Uh, co-authored this book on pediatric somatoform, psychosomatic illness. And right in his own medical textbook, he said one of the issues they have is a shortage of patients to do research on. Wow, mm. isn't that convenient? And then the one of the leading researchers to that textbook is the psychologist that slapped my sister with that diagnosis. And she also did a paper saying that um, one out of two pediatric patients have somatoform. So saying that 50% of pediatric patients or 50% of kids are not really sick. Well, in Justina's situation, her colon wasn't working. So they're saying that she was making it up too. Wow. Imagine being in that kind of pain and having fluid sitting in her stomach that doesn't come out. I can't. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 wow. I don't even know how you could begin to fake something like that. Yeah. I certainly can't imagine ever anybody wanting to. Absolutely. So there's, there's a whole issue just with this psychosomatic illness getting into what people's pain level should be versus what it actually is, which I've always wondered, how do you quantify pain level? Right. You know, so doctors come up with these the scale, these one scales, to one to 10, or, you, or right. zero to 10, actually. whatever it might be, 10, meaning that you're being stabbed or whatever to zero, you're great. But everybody di is different. Everybody right. gets a stomach ache, you know, it's, it's all were just going through that with me when I had my ankle thing. And I'm like, I, I don't know. It's crazy. And how they define it is like psychosomatic illness. Let's say you're studying for a test and you're trying to cram and you get a headache, a stress headache. That's a psychosomatic illness. Or you get a stomach ache from that same exam you're studying for. There's no other underlying reason for it. But they stretch out that definition to cover all kinds <clears> of things. Or the, just the level of pain that somebody has is not within the scale they would expect. Well, the biggest thing is <clears throat> psychosomatic, somatoform, all these uh, conversions or, or anything that they have are all clinical diagnoses. You can't, mm -hmm. di you can't get me a blood test that says what somebody has. But most of these diagnoses are a six-week patient or outpatient diagnosis, mm -hmm. you know, to go in the hospital for an outpatient. And they took my daughter for 16 months. But the bottom line also is that diagnosis that they gave her is not an inpatient. That's what I just said. Yeah, level of care <clears throat> diagnosis. And, I and, and they also put her like in a private room, kept her isolated from pretty much all the other patients. There's minimum interaction. The no school. So she was being treated even differently on the, on the psych floor. They violated her IEP wow. from the town of West Hartford. So her education. And the superintendent wanted to go down and talk to them. He wanted her to get her education and keep going because she was like one and a half years, two years behind, which is really not bad. Now we've fallen way behind the cracks and it's been a, it's been a right. struggle. I don't know why, but we did. But anyway, we'll get her back. And you mentioned West Hartford. That's another detail that not everyone uh, may be familiar with. So, you know, obviously Boston Children's is in uh, Massachusetts, but you guys don't live in Massachusetts. You're in Connecticut. Right? Exactly. That's another big thing. So it took, was it, 
Justina, Justina was at Boston Children's and a ward of the state of Massachusetts for like 14 months. Six, and then 16. From February 14th of 2013 until June 17th or June 18th of 2014. Wow. Wow. And, and then <laughs> she was at, and then she came home to Connecticut, but not home to you guys. So she actually had three stops or four, four stops. Okay. The first two months, at Boston Children's, she was on the neurology floor from February to April, early April. And then in early April, she was admitted, it's not a transfer, she was admitted to the inpatient psychiatric floor lockdown unit at Boston Children's. She was there from April, early April of 2013 until January of 2014. There she was moved to an outpatient psych facility, behavioral facility, behavioral facility in Framingham, Massachusetts called Wayside. And she was there from January until April. Then in April, she was moved to Connecticut, but to a, um, yeah. a, a place called JRI in Thompson. in Thompson, Connecticut, but still under the state of Massachusetts as, as, a, as a ward of the state oh, of Mass. Okay. She wasn't transferred to Connecticut DCF. DCF would not interact with this situation. My mom was actually calling and begging Connecticut DCF to do an to do an investigation of our family and they came over and they talked for a while and they said what do you want us to do you seem like a very nice family and i said i want you to get my daughter out of massachusetts then they put two two together and they couldn't do it because after i guess 30 days you can look it up or 60 days you become a mass resident so for me to get her back into connecticut was a nightmare. Oh, wow. and then there's interstate <clears throat> Laws. laws and all that fun right. stuff because truly each state is its own, it's its own country wow and i had but, when she went back to connecticut to our home she mm -hmm. had to get i had to get birth certificates again to get her re-entered into connecticut that's pretty sick and she was born wow. at um at harford hospital. hospital she's always been a connecticut resident and i do have to tell you this one thing when she moved into because i spent a lot of time with justina and when they moved her into Thompson, Connecticut, is because Reverend Pat Mahoney went up to Deville Patrick, the governor, and he said, "Get." He had a sign. There's a video it. of it. He <clears throat> approached him, and because Deville Patrick was putting out false statements about my parents, even though he didn't even know anything, and he's somebody that could have stopped this whole thing. Along. Um, so anyways, there's a video of Reverend Pat Mahoney confronting him and asking him about my sister and my family's situation and caught him off guard. And so there's that. But then it went. So after that situation happened, it went to Health and Human Services Within to John, John Polonowitz, <clears throat> which is another individual that could have stopped this whole he thing, did. which he did. Eventually. Eventually, it just Eventually. took a little bit, but mm -hmm. it just, it's amazing how certain things had a... Well, what happened was they sent her to JRI in Connecticut. When Justina mm -hmm. was transferred, I think it was within a couple of weeks, I'd have to look back. She was transferred because those two people got involved. So now I'm at this new facility and the president of JRI, a lot of things in Massachusetts, plus this is his first thing that he opened in Connecticut. He was such a gentleman, so nice. He paid for my hotel. He made Justina a birthday party. 
with a DJ, with pictures, with dancing. And she couldn't dance, but she he invited everybody to come. And on top of that, every day he threw money at me. They gave the you organization. A car and they gave me a car. They gave me a hotel, unlimited. You're gonna go do clay today. Here's a couple hundred dollars. They let me take her everywhere. So anyways, so Justina and my, my family, we've had so many restrictions and went from all right. that to completely, it was the weirdest thing because- I thought it was a setup. Yeah, we thought it was a trap <clears throat> at first. By the way, when she was in Connecticut, I think one of the turning points was on May 24th. That was her birthday. That was when they did the her sweet 16. 16th birthday. Well, one of the radio, um, folks up in Boston put together a rally at the Capitol, which we had no idea what kind of turnout there was. Right. There were thousands. They said there was six, 7,000. It was which Jeffrey Cooner did it with Pat Mahoney and Lou, which I think <clears throat> that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back because I always tell people we were in court you know, they first took her, they call it a 72 hour hearing which is a joke because mm -hmm. 72 hours took six weeks, which is the longest 72 hours I've wow. So they were granted temporary custody. We went back to court in November and December. Again, we thought, okay, it's, it's crazy. This has to end. Again, the judge ruled in favor of Boston Children's and DCF. In fact, even in March, they went from temporary custody where they gave state of Massachusetts permanent custody in March. Two months later, we have this rally and, mm -hmm. and the state house heard it because not even a month later, Justina was released to us, no strings attached. Yeah, that's just weird. So we didn't win in the court of law mm -hmm. where we won, which I always tell parents, we won in the court of public opinions. Our legal system for families going through this is messed up. We just lived a horror of this trial for six weeks, which I wouldn't okay. wish on anybody. And that's the story for another day of, of how they go after the family, they go after any of the doctors that treated her that were on the, our side, just because they can. Wow. Wow. And speaking of, of doctors, you mentioned earlier that she went, you took Justina to Boston Children's to see her doctor who had been at Tufts. Did she ever even get to see him? So, so, they blocked so, him. so here's the, the the nitty gritty of that so the reason she went there correct was to be admitted to the the gi for a stomach floor right. where he was supposed to take take her on as a patient because he's known her the most he did a procedure on her he put this port into her colon so right. there was a whole transfer setup that it was when we had that blizzard done she was taken by ambulance from our house in west hartford to connecticut children's and there they transferred her from another ambulance to Boston Children's. And it was all set up from Dr. Flores's office, who let, he's the doctor that left Tufts, which she was seeing over there. The only mm -hmm. reason why she went to Boston Children's was to be under his care, which ended up getting blocked. Yeah, he was, he didn't go by himself from Tufts. Most of his GI team went with him. So there really wasn't any GI people say, why didn't she just go to Tufts? And it's not just GI, it was GI motility, which is a further special. So there, so there was nobody there for her to be seen by. That's the only reason she went right. to Boston Children's. But here's the kicker. He was blocked from seeing her for months. 
In fact, a week after they took custody, he went on his own to go visit her in, in his room. He goes, don't worry, I'm going to take care of things, I'm going to make it right. Well, two minutes after we got there, the social worker from the floor, now this is on the neurology floor, literally grabbed him by the collar and dragged him out and says, you have no rights to be here. Wow. So he didn't get involved until early June. And we saw which, him in the lobby too, and he told us not to worry, everything will be okay. And the only reason he got involved was along with making you know, complaints to the patient relations department. We also, we also filed a complaint with the ethics department. And then through this trial, we saw some of the emails and things that went back and forth. He wasn't brought on until after that ethics complaint. They didn't want him anywhere near her. Because they, they were all in to prove that what she had wasn't real. It was all <clears> in her head. So why bring in a doctor that really knows her medical history? Right. Or contact any prior physicians. But the big thing also you're missing is the paper that was thrown at mom the two days into her stay there, which... That was the treatment plan. Yeah, the treatment plan they wanted my mother to sign, which stated that they're not going to do any further diagnostic testing. My parents can't talk to any of the specialists. They can't take her back to her prior physicians. They're going to take her off of all of her medications. And the biggest thing is she was not allowed to have a second opinion. That's online. You can pull it. That, which meant blocking her doctors from Tufts. That, that neurologist wanted to be her new primary care physician. I said, no, we're good. We like the one we have already. And that was part of <laughs> right. this case really comes down to two parts. The, the four days that my wife and, and Justina were there on that floor where they, the where they initially said they're going to try a different approach, which we agreed with. We're, we're, we're game if it's going to help her. But after a few days, when we started realizing they weren't going to, uh, they were going to take her off all her medications. They were going to block her other doctors from being involved with her care. We said, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to take her back to Tufts. And they, were, and they weren't doing anything. So that's why on Valentine's Day, the next day after that, my parents decided that they were going to sign her out because nothing was going on. They weren't doing anything for Justina. She had standing appointments at Tufts that day, so they were just going to bring her over there, and that's when the whole nightmare started. And you know started. what they did? The following day, they did the treatment. What I was asking for, and Dr. Corson said to do, was an NG tube. Dr. Corson said I would be at Boston Children's Hospital for three days. He said, Linda, you've done this before. She just needs more energy, and you can take her home. Well, that never happened. To get rehydrated, but a nasal gastric tube to place. And they the did it the day after and went to court. Oh. Pretty awful, huh? So you had. And then the biggest thing too is that when she went over to the psychiatric unit, which is called Beta Five, the first meeting we had, or the second meeting we had, they threw a paper they wanted us to sign, and guess what that paper was. A foster care, permanent foster care. Oh my goodness. And then later on, they even threw adoption papers at you guys too. And an adoption paper. I said, why would I sign this? I want her home. Right. But anyway, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Um, That's why I have it on my phone. Um, There's been, after this court case ended, that day, two jurors came forward one spoke to, I believe, Jeffrey Cooner. He did a big, long interview, and he did a broadcast. It hasn't been published yet. It hasn't been published, but he did do some things on the radio. I, don't, I didn't listen to it, but I know some people have. 
And then the other thing is that this is what it reads on um, this other lady. Somebody tweeted. You can read it. Somebody tweeted. Um, hold on. They feel like the jury wasn't ju doing justice for no, Justina. No, the, jur the jurors felt like some of them felt that justice, Justina didn't get justice. But anyway, somebody responded um, to, it's a shame one juror told the Boston Globe they were afraid doctors would not report in the future. That was one of the reasons why. Cases to DCF. Yeah. Wow. And the other thing is they were instructed, this is what another juror said, they were instructed that they could not look at the emails the emails was winning this case. So something mm -hmm. happened the last day. They were told that they could not look at the emails anymore, even though they were put into the court case and accepted by the judge. They were told they had to go only by medical records, which were- and the, medical, and the medical records are basically written by the defendants, the hospital. And they were people who wouldn't let you get a second opinion. So right. yeah. you get one side of the story. I think, yes. I think most people, if they actually went and looked at their own medical records, a number of people would be in for rude awakening of what some of these doctors are writing in there. Because until, unless you go through a medical malpractice lawsuit where you transfer it to a different doctor and you ask for the medical records and you review it, 99% of the population has no idea what's in their own medical records. And obviously, if you've got somebody yourself, a child that's got a complicated uh, medical history, more times than not, you're going to see stuff in there that's not going to be uh, too joyful because that's their way of venting. But that's where the emails ties everything together. The emails alone would have won the case. And somebody and was, said not to use those emails the last day. No, the jurors wow. were supposed to have rights to looking at the emails, but somehow mm -hmm. it came back to us that they were instructed when they're in the deliberation, doing their deliberating, which I still don't get for all those weeks that they only deliberated for six hours. Hmm. But they were told that they couldn't use the emails, even though they were supposed to have full access to it. But within wow. the emails, I know there's a quote in there from one of the doctors saying not to note something in the medical records. There's so many messed up things that are in the emails. They're plotting of different things to just the things that they were saying about my family and all their little things. It took forever to get those emails because they were trying to hide those. So just this whole thing, again, this case makes no sense how it was allowed to get away with. And how many times they try to kick it out of court. Even the week the court was supposed to start, Boston Children's tried to get it out of court again. It, that's why it's taken so long. It's not easy just to get a court kick right. to court. People don't realize that and they have to understand no, it. That's right. So that's what right. needs to be done, I want new laws to be presented. I want to be mm -hmm. a spokesperson, which I am already to a lot of families. So I know a lot of things going on and I really want to help. So yeah, absolutely, and that's and that's our purpose again as an organization too is let people know, make things, make make people aware that these things are going on, and try to bring some laws, uh, and and get them passed that will help, that will protect other other families. Exactly, in the and that's what my doctor uh, is sending me texts. He goes, "You got to get to Washington. You got to get this passed. Are you in Washington at all or not?" Yeah, we're just outside of Washington, D.C., and so I get in there uh, on occasion, and Maggie McNeely uh, and Jim Mason go in there 
a bit more regularly than I do. By the, by the way, one, yeah. one of the things that, uh, even though we lost the, the case, but we didn't lose the war yet. And one of the things that's going to hopefully help people down the road, first, the fact that we brought it this far, nobody's ever taken them this far in this type of case. Right. But one of the witnesses that we had for our side was an ethicist. It was the first time in a medical malpractice case an ethicist was allowed to testify. In Massachusetts. In Massachusetts. So, of course, they went after her tooth and nail to try to discredit her. But, but the other thing is that we're the first case that ever got this to court, too. So we won on both cases that way. So, yes, there's, there's a couple of steps that at least were accomplished with even though we lost that for you know in the future when people start going because here's the the, the nitty-gritty granted our case was both medical malpractice and civil rights violations but in the state of massachusetts first of all medical malpractice in general one out of five win in the state of massachusetts it's one out of ten wow. it's the worst in the country which so we knew we had an uphill battle anyways and then you see the way the the defense attorneys go after you the way they for example i'm just the father do you know i was on the witness stand over two full days two and a half. you know I'm, and i wasn't even there the first four days which is really the case mm -hmm. they took her and changed the diagnosis took her off her meds and then what they did after was all our fight of trying to get her back i was on the stand for two hours and then they, wow. they yelled at me for 10 minutes. How many security guards were there, Linda? Tell me, tell me. And they harassed me so much because I said there were a lot. And I finally said the correct number because my lawyer said, you nailed it the next day. It were 10. 10 way too wow. many that harassed me. Wow. Wow. Uh, wow. 10 security guards. Yeah. But I don't know why she was really yelling at me about how many security. She wanted to probably see my memory. My memory will never go away from that. My PTSD is mm -hmm. very high on that because I didn't understand and I still do not understand what happened. Right, right. I mean, it just defies explanation. I mean, you would think, I mean, we, we have a right as parents to speak into the medical care for our children, to get a second opinion. Um, you know, it's just one of those, the freedoms and rights that we have in the country, but Obviously, our courts and, and folks like uh, Boston Children's and folks who reach uh, overreach, they don't always recognize those rights. Obviously, they didn't recognize your rights. It doesn't mean you don't have the right. It just means they took it away from you. Exactly, and um, that's wrong. They, but they even in this it. article, it says Justina, Justina Pelletier's case, jury finds her case was not neglect. And it kept saying we were neglecting, and it switched. They found it. So then what was it? I would love to know. Yeah. There's a number of things yeah. we learned in this whole seven-year process. One, when we went through the whole juvenile court, uh, you're guilty until proven innocent. Yes. Which is not, which, and it's not just for medical, because we sat there and other, yeah. watching other cases. It's amazing how yes. incompetent our juvenile court system is. And so DCF knows it. They know how to play the game. The judges, and as a rule, tend to rule in favor of DCF. So they kind of just rubber stamp things, unless there's something out of the ordinary that forces their hand. This judge, in both times that we went there in the juvenile court, the first time he went to see Justina at the hospital. And she said, point blank, my parents are fine. Everything is good. I want to go home. 
And he says, what a lovely daughter you have. But guess what? We're going to still keep her with the state of Massachusetts. And then in the November, December trial, eight, whatever months later, she came into the courtroom and testified in an empty court. They cleared it out. We weren't even allowed to be in there. It was just the judge, the, the attorneys, and my daughter. And again, she said the same thing. So it's a stacked deck. And, and until these, these the laws change so that these judges can stop heavily leaning towards the, the DCF side of things, just like going through this medical malpractice side, until the laws change that these doctors get so much built-in immunity and they know it. Now, granted, some of it's, I understand it because they don't want to dissuade people from filing potential mm -hmm. uh, issues of abuse by parents or whatever. But once they do it, DCF, how do, how do they do their investigations? They rely on whatever the institution is that, that did it in the first place. They're not doctors. Right. And they're overwhelmed. They're over, overbooked. So it's like I said, there's there's more more to be done with changing the the, the way the laws are, the way families are, are just guilty. They get here's the other thing. When a hospital does it and, and, and you get reported for this into DCF, you're fighting both the hospital's legal system and you're fighting that state, in our case, Massachusetts. They both have deep pockets. You're fighting it with the money in your back pocket. Right. Right. There's no, there's no empty, unlimited bucket of cash to pay your way. So that's why it's so difficult and daunting for so many families once they hit this. Right. Yeah, and a lot of families can't even go as far and do as much as you've done um, for that very reason. I mean, if you have no money at all, uh, where do you even start? So um, really glad. I hate that this happened to you in the first place, but I'm really glad you went public with it when you did. I know that must have been a very hard decision. I'm sure they were telling you that your nightmare was only going to get worse if you went public with it. Uh, but you got the public on your side, obviously. Uh, every news article that came out, every time you did an interview that we heard about, we, we shared it around, and we weren't the only folks, I mean, all over the country, helping you get that word out. You stood up to it, went public with it, and, of course, we all were with you and with your daughter as far as that goes of like this cannot be happening in our country we can't just sit by and allow for this um, and we're not going to we're going to keep fighting right you know right alongside you um you have a very powerful voice because you've been there and we appreciate so much that you use it uh for that for that cause that you're going to we're going to work together we're going to turn this around and you're not just working with us i mean obviously you've got other folks you're working with too and and even just on your own um but I just, I just want to say thank you on behalf of probably thousands of people out here that you never meet. Uh, but thank you for standing up. Thank you for going public. Thank you for, you know, allowing us into your home for a minute today. And um, just, just thank you for letting us invade what has been such a difficult time and event for all of you uh, so that we can stand with you and, and make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, thank you so much for your time and your viewers. And you know how to reach us, and if we can ever connect down the road, we'd be certainly glad to do so. Absolutely. I, I think we could probably go another hour and hours even with this. Um, but I do need to go ahead and wrap up for this for this episode. Uh, but I really do so much appreciate you being here. Okay. Thank you so much. Is there a way? Thank you. you. Is there a way we could talk later? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I can give you a call. Um, email is always good. You know. So. 
uh, Jennifer's got that contact information. And absolutely, when we get things moving here in Washington, we'd love for you guys to come down. And likewise, if you find yourselves coming down, uh, we'd love to just meet with you when you're here. That's what I'm talking about. Just get to say hi. Okay. okay. We'd love to do that. All right. Thank I'll you call you later. Thank you. Take okay. care. Thank you so much. I thank appreciate you your time. Yes, thank you, too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, to our listeners, be sure to tune in next time for the Corey and Shelby Show and the following week for family defense attorney Diane Redleaf. Tune in for all our weekly episodes at iTunes, Spotify, or on our website at parentalrightsfoundation.org. You can also give to support our work at parentalrightsfoundation.org. Together, we will empower parents to protect children and make experiences like Justina Pelletier's a thing of the past. Until next time, thank you.